I want us to think about, as we get into this, just what's come before. So Jesus has been baptised, and at his baptism, he's heard God speak, and so of the crowd. Remember the voice that came from heaven? This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit has come down on Jesus in the form of a dove, so he's got both the mandate from heaven, and he's got the power from heaven. The crowd have been informed. It's as if everything is ready to go. And you expect Jesus now to get on with his ministry of taking on the kingdom, taking the kingdom of God out into the world. And that, the Bible says, is what he does, because it says in the very next verse that Jesus begins his public ministry. His ministry begins and he's about 30 years of age. But that only serves, in my mind, to highlight the weirdness of what then happened. It's a weird way to start, verse 1 of chapter 4, that Jesus should then retreat straight into the desert. So he's all dressed up, he's all revved up, he's all ready to go, and the Holy Spirit goes, whoop, we're going into the desert. When you expect the Holy Spirit to take him right into Galilee, or wherever it's going to be, to start preaching the gospel, healing the sick, raising the dead, and proclaiming that the kingdom of God is near. That's what you expect Because of his baptism, he's all revved up and ready to go. Just on the brink of much activity, the Holy Spirit takes Jesus to a place of almost inactivity. A place of solitude, a place of fasting, a place away from the crowds. I want us to think then about the desert, and firstly, it's timing. Now, I know the devil is there, and I know Jesus will be tempted. We'll get to that. But don't miss the way Luke sets this up in his gospel. The language in the Greek is interesting. It illuminates what it's easy to miss in the English, although it is there in the English. Luke uses of the Holy Spirit's action, the imperfect tense. Jesus was led and was continuing to be led. This leading of the Holy Spirit wasn't a, a one moment go into the desert. The Holy Spirit keeps leading Jesus. And normally you would expect it to say, into the desert. So the Holy Spirit keeps leading Jesus until he arrives in the desert. But it doesn't say that. It says the Holy Spirit keeps leading Jesus in the desert. So for the 40 days that Jesus is in the desert, the Holy Spirit keeps leading him while he's in the desert. Yeah? So it's not just saying the Holy Spirit said to Jesus, right, go into the desert and stay there for 40 days, and off Jesus goes and the Holy Spirit stays here. No, the Holy Spirit goes with him into the desert and leads him through that process every moment of every day of those 40 days. The primary encounter that Jesus has in the desert is with the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's really important that that we see how Luke's setting this up. And it will perhaps help us to understand how Jesus was able to stand against the devil where we so often fail. The primary encounter that Jesus had was with the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that was with him, that led him. The devil just happened to visit. And there is a distinction, isn't there? So the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the desert. Why then? Why before any action is there this time of inactivity? This is not the first time that we see in the Bible great action, but only after a period of retreat a period of rest, a period of reflection, a period of preparation, we might call it. You see, there's a rhythm that the Bible establishes that's really important. We work for God 
out of rest with God. Okay, we we work for God out of rest with God. Most of us rest from our work. So you get to the end of the week on a Friday or Saturday and you're glad for a day of... You're glad to take a break from your work. That's our psychology. We see the weekend as coming at the end of the week, not the beginning. Anyone see the weekend as the beginning of their week? You might do, but most don't. Most see the week as what they're doing. It'll start tomorrow morning for many of us when we'll hit the ground running and we'll be grateful when we finally arrive at the end of the week and we take a rest from our work. The Bible does it the other way round. Interesting. Think about creation for a moment. Elizabeth mentioned the creation story. Think about the first chapter of Genesis. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. What happened on the sixth day, everybody? God created man in his image. Male and female, he created them that they might be like us. That we might have his imprint, that we might rhythm our lives like God rhythms his and so on. So rich, the idea of being made in God's image. That was day what? What happened on day seven? God rested. Who else rested if he and she were in God's image? Adam and Eve. Okay, so you've got day six, God says to Adam, and therefore Eve, go into all the world, subdue it, uh, be fruitful, this is your job, this is your responsibility, this is the work I want you to do. Okay, where should we start? God says, take a break. Hey, cool boss. First day was a rest day. You see, we work for God out of rest with God. That's a very different rhythm to the one I would naturally live by. Does that make sense? That's a different kind of rhythm. So I work out of rest. I come to my work fully alive, reflected and raring to go, not the other way round. Seventh day was a rest day. And just very quickly, Elijah is the same thing. He's about to start on this massive, um, oh, there's that verse from Genesis. Elijah's the same thing. He's about to start on this massive uh, mission that he has. And God says, I tell you what, let's begin by going away and hiding down by the brook in the cave where the water's nice and still and it runs and it trickles by. And don't worry about anything. I'll feed you there and you can sleep there. You can stay there for a while. That's a pretty good start to the mission of God, don't you think? Nehemiah is all fired up, revved up, raring to go to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And after persuading the king that he worked for in a foreign land, he goes back to Jerusalem. And the first thing he does, this is the, the man who's, who's uh, used in the Bible to talk about leadership, probably the more than anyone. He's the one who can strategize and lead people and so on. He spends the first three days just sort of chilling around. What are you doing, Nehemiah? Chillax, he'd say. Chillax. This is, a bit, this is a bit different to me. This is not quite my rhythm. This, I'm just going to pause and reflect and absorb and recuperate. Last week, Claire very helpfully got us to think about what season we're in. Or what season we might be moving into. And whilst this has been a lifetime of learning for me and continues very much to be, there's a sense in which God's speaking to me again about this new season that might be characterised by And just listen for a couple of minutes before you uh, think that sounds really arrogant. Who does he think he is? Characterised by do less, but achieve more. 
do less, but achieve more. You see, most of us, I suspect all of us, have tried doing more to achieve more. We've all tried doing more as the key to success. If doing more in church life was the key to success, we'd be really winning by now. Wouldn't we? Because I don't look around and see a lot of people doing less. I see a lot of people doing more. And, and that's because maybe you say, well, well, that's the culture we model, that's what I model, and all of that. True. The strategy of more is best has left us exhausted, somewhat distracted, somewhat shallow, rather anxious and stressed, and so on. Jesus, whose life made more impact than any other, never seemed to rush. And it infuriates me. Can you understand that? It makes me mad in a sort of, you know, he's God and I'm not sort of thing. How did he do that? He had plenty of time to eat with friends. I don't seem to manage that unless I really work hard at it. He seemed to be able to have time in the day just to hang around at a well, the meeting point, and see who rocked up. I I don't do that, and neither do you. I've watched. You don't have time for that. He seems to be able to change his plans on a moment's notice and said, okay, Zach, I'll come to your house for tea. When was the last time you did something that spontaneous? I'll come round for tea. Seven weeks Thursday. No, you can't. The plumber's coming. It's a different... He lived in a different time, all that stuff. But let's not miss something. He preached a little bit, but not very much. Certainly not as much as me, which is quite depressing, really. And they're still talking about what he said. Told lots of stories. Seemed to have time for everyone. Whatever is true about Jesus, his rhythm's different to mine. And probably yours too. Yet his effectiveness was on a scale that should never take our breath away. Do less, achieve more. In fact, Jesus makes the very point. He says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you... Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Okay, farming metaphor of the ox, where the two oxen would be yoked together around their neck, a wooden yoke or whatever. And what the farmer would do is put a young, inexperienced ox with the older, more experienced ox. In order that the older ox, who knew the pace necessary to plough the field for the whole day, would dictate the pace for the younger, inexperienced ox who, in his inexperience, would rush off with youthful enthusiasm in the morning and be exhausted by lunchtime. And so they would be yoked together to teach the younger oxen the rhythm, the pace of the day to make their work together effective. Jesus says, if you yoke yourself with me, the rhythm, the pace of my day is easy. The burden of rush that I will place on you if you're yoked with me is light. That's a different rhythm to mine. I need to learn what God's saying about that. 
You see, most of us, our pace is overbearing and our pace is burdensome. And we believe that our more is the most effective way to live. And the fact perhaps that we can't think of anything that we could stop, you know, some clever sausage says to you, why don't you just stop doing something? And you scan what's in your week or your month and you think, well, I can't stop anything. That reveals a deeper, more penetrating issue in our lives. Essentially, when I say I can't stop anything, I am saying it's all down to me. I am saying it's about my achievement and my success. I'm saying I can't stop something because if I stop something, God will not be able to carry on without me. For X thousand years, God has done quite well without you. He'll manage. No, that's why I still live this way. But I'm trying to be sure that it's possible to trust God with our lives in such a way that I live at a pace that is His, that the Bible says is easy, a burden of pace that is light, and yet fulfill everything God has for me to fulfill, and therefore be as effective as I could ever be. And so God made keeping the Sabbath, the day, as a rest day, as an act of trust, as an act of faith. You can stop, you know, and it will all turn out all right. Because in the end, this is God's doing, not yours. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. It's interesting, isn't it? I think we rediscover in times of, uh, of rest, usually enforced rest, because that's the only kind of rest we're willing to accept, that it redefines our priorities and it redefines what's appropriate Richard Foster, reflecting on, uh, on, on solitude, he says, at first we thought that solitude was a way to recharge our batteries in order to enter life's many competitions with new vigour and strength. I'm going to take a break and then I'll get back to it with a new sense of vigour. In time, however, we found that solitude did not give us power to win the rat race. On the contrary, it taught us to ignore it altogether. Slowly we found ourselves letting go of our inner compulsions to win and our frantic efforts to attain. In the stillness, our false busy selves were unmasked and seen for the impostors they truly were. Very pragmatically though, it must be true, mustn't it? You see, when you are tired and when you are frustrated and when you are fraught and stressed and distracted, what's the first thing that goes? The first thing that goes is your relationships. That's the first thing. The first impact will be on your relationships. You'll become more task-focused. Got to get through this day. Tick, 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 tick. Get out of my way. Tick, tick. Get out of my way. I'm coming through. That's the first thing that goes is our relationships. We become more irritable. Just theory for some of you, I know. But in some families and in some churches, people get irritable with one another. 
when they're tired and fractious. You become less able to see, to notice what's going on. Ever been so caught up in your own freneticism, if that be a word, that you fail to see the pain in someone else? Relationships are the first things that suffer and the things that suffer most. Yet, the life that God has called us to, the way of living that God alone says is important, is all about relationships. Relationship with God are up. Relationship with one another in Christ are in. Our relationship going out are out. All relationships. My life in God is defined by relationships. When I live at a pace that is inappropriate, the relationships begin to crumble. I'm less the person God's called me to be. Maybe that's why this rhythm is so important. That I come into what God's calling me to do out of rest. Out of that place of relationship with God, peace with myself, relationship with my inner being. Secondly note though, the desert, it's trouble. Think about what Jesus did for a moment as he follows the prompting of the Holy Spirit and for 40 days he rests, he fasts, he gives up food, he spends it all alone. Sounds like a nightmare for most of us. What happens when you stop Put it more powerfully, what happens when you fast? Not just food, anything. What happens when you fast? What happens when you spend time alone? This happens. We hear ourselves speak. When I'm alone, when I'm more rested, if I go without food for a while, I begin to hear my inner heart speak. Resentments, fears, bitterness, frustration, anger, unforgiveness. Those things begin to surface within me. It's not that they weren't there. It's just that in the quietness, in the space, I can begin to hear them. That's not a comfortable place to be. It's why many of us keep rushing. It's why many of us choose to live with the noise. And I include myself in that many. It's easier to keep rushing than to face what's in my own heart. Even this Christmas time, some of you will have said or thought, it's harder at this time of year because I've got time to think. It's worse during the night because I have time to think. And so we keep ourselves busy. We live with the rush and we mask this uh, idea that rush equals godliness because I'm doing all this stuff for God. So what a great Christian I am and the stuff that God desperately needs to sort for me to be useful remains hidden and pushed and not listened to and not heard. Fasting reveals the things that control us. We cover up what is inside us with food and other good things But in fasting, these things come to the surface. So many attitudes strive to control us. Anger, pride, fear, hostility, gluttony, avarice. All of these and more will surface as I fast. 
It's a blessed release to have these things out in the open so that they can be defeated and we can live with a single eye towards God. If we're going to be useful to God, we have to face ourselves. To own up to the things that are true about us that we'd rather not accept. Not that we might be condemned by them, or overwhelmed with guilt because of them, but because as they rise to the surface in our conscience, it creates the space for God to heal, forgive, to cleanse and renew. To lift the burden from us. But you can't do that while you're rushing, actually. I've tried. St. John the Cross famous for his phrase, the dark night of the soul, talks about my house being all now still. In a world where we put the radio on to wake us up and let it fall to sleep when we do, this is a different rhythm, a different way. And whilst these things weren't true of Jesus, all of those things didn't rise in that fasting time. He was sinless and open and pure before God. He lays this pattern for us, though, and to be honest, those things will rise in us. But what a joy to have them healed and restored so that the next time they don't rise again. And sure, the desert has its temptations. They did for Jesus and they will for us. It's another good reason to avoid stopping. It's another good reason to enjoy, to avoid quietness. It's another good reason to make sure you don't go to the desert because the devil is there. And you will know in the long dark nights, in the quietness, that the devil's there. True? You will know when you stop the Spirit of God is not the only one hanging around. And we're tempted to avoid the desert because we know it's really hard to be in the desert place. Because it creates opportunity for us to be taunted, for us to be tempted, for us to be, sometimes it feels, torn alive. And so these verses are so, so important. Because in these verses, Luke tells us that the devil threw everything at Jesus. You know, it would be really annoying, wouldn't it, to know that Jesus conquered certain temptations, but they weren't the ones you faced. But no, three temptations that covered everything. Appetites, ambition, authority. Or in our colloquialism, in our, our language, in our day, money, sex and power. The things that call on our lives and on our hearts, that break us, that rob us, that screw us up, that demean us, that distract us, that pull us down, that ultimately lead us to death. Jesus faced it all in the desert. And how did he do that? You've heard countless sermons that say that Jesus did that by speaking the word of God back to the devil. And that's absolutely true. No question about that. But if you're like me, what you're wondering is why when you do it, it doesn't always have the same power that it had when Jesus did it. Have you ever wondered that? 
Have you ever used those verses back to the devil and it feels like you're speaking to yourself? Have you ever used those verses and somehow it feels the devil's mocking that they don't work like they worked for Jesus? Maybe that's just me. Still love me. You see, we need more than the Word of God. Think carefully with me for a moment. We need more than the Word of God. Every rabbi of Jesus' day had the Word of God. They knew it inside out and upside down. To be a rabbi, they'd memorize the whole of the Old Testament by heart. But they said of Jesus... That man doesn't speak like the rabbis and the teachers of our day. He speaks with authority and power. What, what's the difference? Same word of God. What's going on here? Well, Luke spends a lot of time introducing us to the idea that when Jesus came, what made him different as a rabbi was that he was full of the, and we've had it in verse 1 already, full of the Holy Spirit. Remember what we said at the beginning, how Luke sets this up. The primary person that Jesus is with in the desert is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is led right the way through his desert time with the Holy Spirit. You see, all through the... Christmas stories that Luke has told us about, we see again and again reference to the Holy Spirit. Simeon, in chapter 2, we are told, was a man full of the Holy Spirit. And it was revealed to him that Jesus was the Christ by the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, and we're reminded that John the Baptist talked about Jesus who would come. He will baptize with water, but he'll also baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then it is baptism. The Holy Spirit came down on Jesus. John chapter, Luke chapter 4 verse 1, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. And so Luke is building this picture that what's different about Jesus is that he is a man that's fully conversant, fully understands the word of God, but he needs the Holy Spirit. You see, it's the Spirit and the Word. It is that combination that kicks the kingdom of darkness into oblivion. Hallelujah. So Luke, who writes the story of Jesus, will one day write of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Luke tells us when the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came at a festival called Pentecost, which was a celebration of what? The Word, the law. You need the Holy Spirit and the Word. Spirit and Word. And sadly, over the years, the devil has been very clever, not wanting to give him any credit. In fact, we probably could do this quite happily ourselves, didn't need much help from him. But you have churches over here that are all spirit, and you have churches over here that are all word, and basically the world's lost and going to hell. Is that a fair summary of the last 60 years? I'm joking, but do do you know... We've split off in these different ways and these different things, and we've, we've lost something of Jesus who was the word of truth and the man fully alive with the Holy Spirit. That's why he took the devil on and won. That's how you can take the devil on and win. The spirit and the word. Submit yourselves then to God and the devil will flee from you. And that's what happens. So don't forget as we leave the desert, it's triumph. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left. He left. 
until an opportune time. How come Jesus then went in to the villages and healed the sick and cast out the demons and raised some dead people and spoke words that caused men's hearts to burn from the inside out? How come? Where was that victory won? In the desert. That's where you win, in the desert. If you don't win in the desert, it's hard to win in life. You won't win in life if you lose in the desert. Victory is won in the desert. doesn't matter how hard we try, how much effort we put in, how busy we become, we will lose if we don't win in the desert. If we don't win in our quiet space. If we don't win in our own time. If we don't win when no one's looking. If we don't win in those hard places. Is this what Jesus meant when he told his disciples? Can you remember? They were trying to cast out a demon out of a boy and they couldn't do it. They're making a bit of a pig's ear of it. And Jesus came down and sorted it out. And the disciples said to him, how, how come we couldn't do that? What did Jesus say? That kind comes out by prayer and that kind of victory is won in the desert. Isn't that what he's saying, I think? That kind of victory is won in the desert. And so I'm introduced at the beginning of Jesus' ministry to a different rhythm, a different set of priorities, a different way of going about things, of this working out of rest, this getting it right with God first, this allowing the space for me to be at one with him and true to myself and And then this final, final, final phrase, until an opportune time. If this was an action movie, you'd have a very difficult, uh, what would you call a chord, Andrew, that's really off-key and uh, and gets us all going, something terrible is about to happen one day. That's the chord, we don't know. But you know the chord I mean, the terrible kind of, you know, know, uh uh-oh, uh-oh, we're going to come back to that moment. And it's Luke's way of giving a nod and a wink to what's coming. And the Bible's brilliant, isn't it? Because it gives a nod and a wink all the time. We saw that through the story last year. You're talking about Joseph, right in the half of the Old Testament, way back at the beginning, and then there's a nod and a wink about Jesus, yeah? So this is the same thing here. Luke turns around the orders in which he tells us about the temptations in order for everything to end in Jerusalem, which is really important for Luke, as we will see. He's nodding and winking about Jerusalem. And then he says to an opportune time, a nod and a wink, the devil will be back. This battle that Jesus won here is not the only battle. There will be another battle of which this one foreshadows because a battle is coming when the devil will flee and will not come back for an opportune time. There is a time when the devil will flee once and for all. And Luke, even at the beginning, is nodding and winking about a time when his kingdom will be forever fallen. How cool is that? Let's pray.